Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never mean no harm. Be sorry, never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get them, but the Lord never will. We're casting away the only way they know how. With a little mojo, then the Lord will allow. Just two good old boys, two good old boys. They share the mojo for free, mojo for free. But they don't understand why they can't get their face on TV. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. The big red bus we know as the Mojo Radio Show. If you're new to the show, what do we do here? We just find interesting people from all walks of life as you'll hear today. We interview them, we chat, we discuss their opinions on stuff and we endeavour to extract as much as we can about what they do to get their mojo working so we can apply it to our own world or take it on board and help somebody we know who may be having a tough time, who needs to get their mojo working. You can take the stuff that we share and take it to them and or just share the show with them. Uh, let's race around the studio, check who's in the house today. Uh, let's say good day to the gang. In the voice of the booth, first up, AP, welcome. <coughs> yeah, I'll just put the cans on. Oh, there you are. <laughs> nice to be here, of course. Nice to be anywhere, really, at my age. Uh, on his best behaviour today. <laughs> <laughs> it's only early in the year. Uh, that is our driver, Robbo. Welcome, mate. Another Thank you. Another big week. How are you? Yeah, another big week. Hey, listen, I've got some really exciting news to share. Check this out. Tim Tams are no longer taking pride of place in the fridge. Why? Polly Waffles are back. No. Yes, they're back. There's some Australian company uh, to explain to our overseas friends, Polly Waffles are, what are they, Gary? They're like a chocolate candy bar. No, 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 they're a wafery. Wafer, yeah. They're chocolate like a coated, chocolate-coated wafer, wafer with a marshmallow. marshmallow filling. Right. And not, that I, not that I know much about Not that you know much about waffles. that. Well, Nestle, who used to own the rights to the Polly Waffle, in their wisdom decided they were going to discontinue them. An Australian company, whose name eludes me, has picked them up and is now producing them, and they'll be back in stores within a couple of weeks. How good is that? Now, what's really ironic about this, folks, is if you've been listening to the show since season one, we were going to run a campaign on our little show called Bring Back the Polly Waffle. Mm -hmm. When we did research, there was already a campaign <laughs> saying Bring Back the Polly Waffle. So that is, uh, that is pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, that is good. Before we proceed, we should say hello to the other member of our show, the lovely automated studio assistant, Lola. Good morning. Hello, boys. It's just so nice to hear that voice this early in the morning, isn't it? <laughs> Lola is always so friendly. She is, isn't she? But she hasn't got much choice. <laughs> Mind you, she has got some sass off the air. She does have her moments. Now... Last week, we spoke to our very good Canadian buddy, Stan Peake, and we mentioned on that show that Stan has been an amazing supporter of the Mojo Radio Show, not only with what he shares, but also with the people he's introduced us to. And Stan Peake has introduced us to this week's guest, who is Martin Parnell. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> 
Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week, Martin, immigrated to Canada from England, as you'll be able to very quickly see during the show. In 2002, at the age of 47, he began his running career. And when I say career, this is a running career. He started by running numerous marathons. He started doing some triathlons and ultra marathons. (laughs) But more recently has set four Guinness World Book records all through running. As an example of that, one of the records was, get this, mate, he ran 250 marathons in one year. That's, that's what, like what, four a week? <laughs> <laughs> What's incredible about this is not just the story of what he's done with the resilience, the grit, how did he do it? But also I think what you'll hear is that what drives, what's the purpose behind all this and how powerful, as we've talked about before in the show, how powerful being of service to others can be to your own mojo. So, Martin, with great delight, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks, Rob. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And I think it's fair to say, Martin, that this show will take Robbo way out of his comfort zone, being a fuller-figured sound engineer, because <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about running, athletics, marathons and ultras. So Careful. Pre-season is- training's already started, mate. Be careful. <laughs> We've already lifted six-packs for weeks. But you've already started tapering. What are you talking about? <laughs> Um, Martin, when people meet you and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, I got a couple of answers, uh, Gary. One is um, I'm a professional speaker and author. Is kind of my my business reply. But the other one is um, I'm a bit of a nutcase who likes to like to take on some of these challenges and just give it a go. Yeah, just kind of if somebody gives me an idea, I like to. It makes somewhat sense. I like to give it a shot. As we said in the opening to the show, you have got a very distinguished list of things you've achieved in running. Is Of all the running achievements you've got to your name, Martin, what, what is your proudest moment? Um, I think uh, it was during that year in 2010 when I was attempting to run the 250 marathons in a year, so five a week trying to raise money for a children's charity right to play. And really my proudest moment was every Thursday I'd go to a school and I would run a hundred times around their, their soccer field or, or your rugby field and the kids would join me. So during the year I ran uh, 60 schools with over 12,000 kids and uh, we had lots to chat about, but the kids Always at the end of the run, at the, at the end of the, the day, they'd give me their pocket money to help the other kids. And I, I, I tell you what, the, it's the kids that make it. They kept me going during that year. I just want to camp there on kids just for a second. What's interesting about children is when you were a kid, you described yourself as a tubby kid. How did you go about changing your identity from being a, a, a tubby kid into being someone who enjoyed running. And did you, did you experience that with the children who came down to the footy field to see you run? Were you looking at kids that had seen themselves as one thing when, in your mind, you knew they could be something else? That's a great question, Gary. So for me, um, yeah, I was a bit of a tubby kid and always, in England, always pick last for the football team or the rugby team or the cricket team. And it sort of it sort of put me on the outside a little bit in school, a little bit of you know bullying and so on. Being um, and I never really, I mean, in many ways, I didn't come out of school and 
and into the workforce and, you know, played a little bit of tennis and, and, uh, and golf. And it wasn't until, well, the age of 47. So it's, it's a long time before I, I found running. And that was only because, you know, my brother challenged me to a marathon. But going back to the kids then that I, I ran with in the school, generally the kids that would stick with me were, were what I call the loners. Um, the, the, you know, these are kids who, who are a little bit on the outside, you know, socially maybe have challenges or physically, you know, they didn't, you know, consider themselves that they fit in. And these kids would stick to me and, and would, we would chat. And uh, honestly, I remember one thing specifically, a girl who ran, um, oh gosh, she must have run 10K with me. And she chatted with me. And afterwards, I heard that she had real problems in school. And her mom was called down to see her running with me. And, and she couldn't believe how she was interacting. And I just think I could really relate to those kids who are on the outside and socially just didn't fit in. And they seemed to, they seemed to turn to running. It's, it's, it's an interesting area, Martin. What, what do you take from that? Now, the reason I asked you this is because you are running around an oval. You're there for a long time. And these kids are coming and going and you run for a time. I suspect you speak to this girl or speak to a young boy and then they get back to class. But the, the memory, the thought, something's left with you and you're, back, you're on the track then by yourself for a while. What do you take from that? Like when you see that stuff, have those conversations, what, what was left in your mind and what was, the, what was the question or the thought that they left with you? You know, I think, uh, I think what it left with me was a huge sense of responsibility we have as adults with children. Uh, I feel we've kids down in many ways, adults, uh, whether it's, you know, our acceptance of all these, the, you know, the, the tablets, the screens, you know, when, when I see your family at a, having a meal out, you know, the mum and dad are on the, on the cell phones. And, and I just think, you know, we have a huge responsibility for these children to, to, to be a, uh, a guide for them, to be a role model. And I just think in many ways we're pathetic at it, Gary, to be honest with you. And I think we've got to take that more seriously. And, you know, I'm fortunate to have kids and I've got grandkids. I've got a 14-year-old granddaughter who, you know, I, I, I feel a responsibility. So I've run with her. She's on the, she's on the cross-country team. I think we've got to do more, Gary, to be honest. I think we've got to step up a bit here. When we talk about your granddaughter, Autumn, when you have done what you've done and you look in the mirror each morning, Martin, what's the, what's the message that you want to be portraying back in the mirror for Autumn? Like what's the, what's the legacy you want to be leaving for her in her mind? A couple of things. Again, great questions, Gary. A couple of things. One is... That for Autumn, uh, she's 14, that really uh, she can do and achieve really any goals that she wants to, to achieve. Um, what I want her to do is break boundaries, is push forward, is to be a, a leader herself. And you know, that's one thing I really encourage her to do. Last year, I made her a race director of a small race, and she <laughs> really? did a fantastic job. The other thing I think is important is that... That's great. Yeah, well, you've got to do these things. Now, the other thing, Gary, I think is that, you know, men have a role in what, what women do, and I think in a positive way, in a supportive way. You know, I think this... this obviously, we've heard a lot of the Me Too, and I think uh, as a father, as a grandfather, as a husband, you know, I think there's a role for me 
to support girls and women in what they do. And this has come out specifically in, in the work I've done in Afghanistan, supporting the women and the girls running over there. It's, it seems that you, you're a person who is very clear on their purpose or their why. And I'm just curious, just to kind of put a thread through this, Martin, that obviously kids with your charity Right to Play that you support and the running you've talked about with the girls, you've talked about your granddaughter, the ladies in Afghanistan. At the core of all that, Martin, what is your purpose? What is the why? Well, I think just to, just to step back a, a moment from that, um, I've had very st- strong women in my life. Like I never, knew, and I think it's important to share this. So I never knew my grandfathers, but my two grandmothers were extremely were were very strong women, and spent time with them. Uh, also, my mum was a very you know strong woman and a very service orientated woman, and I got three sisters um, and a daughter, and so on. And I think. You know, my why, it's, it, it has changed over the years. Initially, when I, when I started running, it was for me. It was to, 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 to help me actually, it helped me overcome a, a tragedy in my life when I lost my wife, Wendy, to cancer. And it got me through a very dark time. But then I really felt a need to give back. And it, that's been growing and growing. It came a little bit late for me, the, the feeling to give back, um, really until my late 40s, early 50s. But since then, that's been my focus. And I just feel we're so fortunate in where I live in Canada, um, in so many other places, we're fortunate. And it's really us to give back and help others. Um, I'm a member of Rotary, and that's an organization that, again, allows me to give back. So I just think, you know, but for the grace of God, you know, we could all be in a very different position. But we are in a place where we can make a difference. And that's my why. It's not complicated. It's just... You know, we can help and so we should. It's funny, man, because many people want a why. They want a purpose. A lot of people are challenged to find it. And I'd be curious to know, you said that you started the running because it was like a challenge or a dare from, was it your brother-in-law? From my brother, Peter, yeah. No, from my brother. At what moment, was there a moment in a race after an event somewhere where it went from, being a challenge just to run a race into I can use running as a platform to deliver my purpose. Was there a moment? I think there was probably two moments. The <laughs> <laughs> first one was in 2005. I had been running for a couple of years and I decided to have an adventure. And with a group of 30 other people, uh, we cycled from Cairo to Cape Town. Uh, four months um, through Africa, 100 kilometers a day, uh, six days a week. And I, and I was just looking for an adventure. I was looking for no meaning of life, just <laughs> to have a, you know, an, an incredible adventure through Africa. But what happened is I ended up playing sport with kids all the way through Africa. I ended up playing table tennis in a village in Ethiopia, two young lads. I played, I played you know, uh, f- soccer, football with some kids. I was running with the kids. And I just saw during that trip the power of sport with children. It didn't matter if you couldn't speak the language, you know, it doesn't matter your age, your gender, your religion, your culture, sport transcends all of that. And then what happened is that was in 2005. I continued my triathlon, my ultra running. And in 2009, so really four years later, a friend of mine introduced me to right to play that used sport to teach kids 
uh, not the games themselves, but uh, life skills, leadership, team building, and conflict resolution. And I kind of put the two together, and I thought, well, maybe I can use my running. I seem to be gifted at doing very long, boring things. I just seem to be able to go and go and go. And so an idea came up that maybe I could give back through my running. It's such an interesting thing, Martin, because so many people struggle to find that moment. And I wonder, is it a case of people, the moment arrives, but they don't recognize it? And it's just nice hearing you talk about that story where the moment arrives, you capitalized on it, then you went and did something with it. But I suspect a lot of people maybe don't have their radar on to be present in that moment to be able to recognize it. Is that something you hear, you know, with your speaking, your writing, you're out there talking to people? Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think, I think it's just what I'm, this is just my thought, Gary, you know, and I just think in life opportunities or, or these sparks come along and many times they're missed. And I, I think you're right. You sort of got to be open to them. So the question is, how do you get open to these kind of things? I think there's a couple of things. One is I think you've got to um, start somewhere. And for me, you know, the more I give, quite so I think look for opportunities that take you outside your comfort zone to give back, to do something different. And not necessarily just for others, but even for yourself. Try something a bit different and you'll actually get in the habit of trying something a bit different. And it changes you both, I think, mentally and physically. You, you become more energized. You, you see things in a different way. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly religious. I am a Catholic, but um, I'm more spiritual. So when I'm running, I really, I really like the, the trails and, and that side of it. So I think it's being more open to try different things. And, you know, don't say no. Like, obviously, there's times maybe it doesn't fit. But do something as well. And I, for me, giving back opens up so many opportunities for that when the spark comes along, then I can see it and maybe do something with it. When uh, when our mutual friend Stan Peake introduced us, and Stan's a great mate of the show, like we're, we're big fans of Stan, and he said, you've got to meet my friend Martin. And when I, looked, when I was digging around looking for who this guy Martin was, The thing I think that resonated the most with me, Martin, was this statement. You said, I thrive on long, boring things. And that's so contrary to how society operates because we kind of, we get bored and we we almost avoid long, boring things, yet that's your thing. What mindset do you take into this, Martin? I agree with you, Gary. Like, like everything's so instant. You know, you go on the computer or the tablet or whatever, and it's like pops up and it's uh, 30 seconds. And apparently we are, are, what is it? We can only concentrate now for seven seconds, which is shorter than a cricket or something. I don't know. You hear all this stuff, right? And I'm thinking, you know, for me, when I'm out there, when I'm running the marathon or, or do an ultra run, the fact that I'm not being distracted and it's almost like when I run, there's a, like a beat. It's almost like a beat with a, with a heartbeat or with the with footfall. And slowly I kind of break through all the distractions and, and really almost think or sort of, you know, head into this zone. And they talk about this, you know, the Zen zone. I really don't know what that is. But, but this zone where I'm thinking about other stuff. And, and I think we have to give ourselves time to break away from all the distractions whether it's, you know, just out in the wilderness or just a quiet place, 
because you've got to have time for this. This isn't a push button thing you can do. Like suddenly, you know, I need to know the answer to this. You actually have to give time for it. And I think, you know, whether this is my meditation, maybe that's what it is, but just, just, you know, I don't listen to music when I run. I just kind of let the, let the, the brain and the, you know, the, the thought process just free flow. And that, I think that's something we need to do a little bit more of. It's something I wanted to ask you about is I had an interview with a guy who had done 50-something marathons in 50 different states of America in a year. So basically I think it was one a week or something. And, and he talked about the challenges he faced Yet what was interesting, Martin, is he found that towards the end of this period of doing all these marathons back to back, he actually got faster. So where, and what he discussed was most of us would think that the more we did, the more tired we get, the more broken down our bodies get. Yet he said that the more he did back to back of these marathons or ultras, the stronger and faster and easier it got for him because he said his body went, yep, I know what i got to do today. I did it yesterday. I did it the day before. I did it the day before. I know what I have to do. Did you find that 250 in a year is extraordinary, particularly at the age you started? Did you find that was the same thing for you, that the more you did, the more you went on, the more the body went, yep, I've got this? Yeah, a couple of things happened. Uh, so I started uh, on January the 1st, 2010, and uh, I was injured in mid-February. I had, a, I had an injury, uh, a uh, um, repetitive strain injury in my left leg, and I was off for two weeks. Managed to get going again. Had some niggly stuff. And in fact, all through the year, I needed a little bit of help through physio and so on. But it's interesting. So I ran my fastest marathon was number 184. So all, and that was in Victoria. And actually, at the end, and I think part of it's psychological, to be frank. You're coming to the end of this thing. You want to get them done. And I definitely picked up speed in December. So my last 15 to 20 marathons were quicker. But the body's an amazing thing. And, um, you know, it held together. The knees were good. And at the end of it, uh, yeah, I wanted to rest. But, but the body, the body, you've got to use it. Darren, you've got to use this thing. You know, I'd, I'd rather burn out than fade <laughs> away. So <laughs> I think that's... Uh, yeah, that's the way to do it, man. You got to, you know, when I finish, this thing's going to be done with. You know, there'll be no warranty on this old on these bones. I tell you. <laughs> That, that, look, I love hearing that, Martin. This is a great conversation. It takes a huge amount. And anybody listening will go, just think about that, five marathons a week, every week for a year. And that's an incredible achievement. Where does your resilience and grit come from? Where, what do you draw upon in those times where you go, man, I'm going to do it again today or I'm 32Ks in, I've still got 10Ks to go where do you draw from? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, so for me, it's an external draw. It's, it's really not necessarily an internal draw. To be frank, there's many days I would rather have stayed in bed and had a cup of tea and read the newspaper at, <laughs> you know, at five in the morning. But, but what happened is I made, a commit, I made a commitment to the kids, right? To, I made a commitment to write the play into those 6,000 kids. I would do whatever I could to try and raise $250,000. And I'll be honest, it, you know, if I... Unless I had a broken leg, if I could get out of bed, and, and I used a trick, I, I break everything down into 10-minute into chunks. I chunk it all down. So when I get out of bed, I, I don't think of running. I think of, well, let's just get dressed and have a cup of tea. Next 10 minutes, okay, let's get the running gear on. So I use that trick to get me out the door, and then I'm going. So it's an, it's an external driver of a commitment I made to the kids that I would do my best. To, to do those 250 marathons. Gold, Bobo. Absolute gold. Marathon gold. Touching uh, 
running shoe gold. Mm. It's, I, um, I just noticed earlier that uh, <laughs> that, ma- that you were talking about uh, what was it? Boring, long, boring things. Long, boring things. So it occurred <laughs> to me that um, you know, this, we're probably one of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. why he said yes. That's right. That's, that's why, why he said, said yes. yes. Absolutely. No, guys, no, no. Gold. That's gold. That, that's Robbo gold. Goodness me. It's only took the whole season to finally find some gold. Oh, nice. It's early in the new season, so, you know, we're on it. Now, Martin, just break down this 10-minute thing because I like this a lot. However, I think there's more to it than you just talked about. Tell me your running formula of nine plus one. Yeah, so it's, it's something I, I mean, I use it, as I mentioned, not just for the running, but also when I, during that year, just to get me out the door. But basically, it's to break, it's to break a, a big challenge down into little pieces. So I do nine and ones, which I run for nine minutes and walk for one. Um, and the one minute I walk, I use it just to kind of, okay, see where I'm at, take in some hydration, nutrition, uh, make sure everything's okay. It's sort of a recalibration every 10 minutes. And then I just keep going for the next, you know, nine and one. And, and I find for me breaking it down, if it's, if it's a marathon or an Ironman or, or an ultra, a hundred miler, that works for me. It just, it, I don't get overall, I don't get, you know, I don't get, get down. I've got another whatever hours to go or whatever. It's that 10 minute chunk. So it's, it works, man. It works. Just break it down. Take me to a dark moment, Martin, where you are running, you've got that external drive, you have got every good intention, but there's a place where you're starting to doubt yourself. T- take me to a moment in a race, an event, a run, where you are in a dark place that you can easily recall the emotions of what you felt, saw, were hearing at that time. And how how do you go about dealing with those dark moments? Yeah, I think I think you know one of the one of the worst in terms of the challenges I've taken on was was that in February of 2010 when I had completed 30 marathons and, and I had the repetitive strain injury. And of course, uh, that night I came home when my leg was just killing me. I didn't know what it was. We had an x-ray. And in fact, the first x-ray, the, I was told it's a, it's a, um, it's a stress rapture. And I, was, I, was, I felt embarrassed because I had been putting it out there that I was you know, going to attempt to run 250 marathons and, and try and raise this money and it's a $250,000 and I had done, you know, 30. And in my mind, I was a complete failure. And that night I said to my wife, Sue, Sue, what am I going to do? Like, I, this, you know, I'm, I'm done. Like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it was a very difficult, very difficult time of not knowing what was going to happen. Okay. And of making that commitment. And I had failed the kids and it was brutal. Gary, I, I, I thought, you know, I do. Can I, you know, can I swim 250 marathons? Can I, I, I was, I was grasping at straws. So that was a difficult time when you put the, when you put it out there and then, and then you have a huge setback. Uh, it's tough. Is that what got you back on the road though? Because you'd put it out there and you didn't want to fail. Is that what got you back on the road? Well, well, okay. So what happened is, uh, it wasn't a, a stress fracture because if it had been, I would have been done. It was a, it was a muscle injury. So the doctor said, okay, two weeks and uh, put, you know, ice on it and then put heat on it. And so I did for two weeks. And then I, I started just walking, praying that I could get through. I spent eight hours, 15 minutes uh, walking a marathon in minus 10 in, in February. And I walked eight marathons. And, you know, thank heavens, the lake came around. And I, start, I slowly started running again. Um, but I was, you know what, it could have gone the other way. And I was just fortunate 
that I could get through that arch with walking the marathons, and that got me going again. But you're right. I mean, that drove me. I mean, there's no question. That drove me to get going again. We had a Navy SEAL on the show, a guy called Ray Cash Care, at the end of season five, Martin. And one of the things we spoke about was that, you know, the SEALs and the Marines and the Green Berets are all seen as these superheroes. They're seen as the unfallible uh, warriors that can't be broken. Yet... Behind the scenes, Ray had his own demons and things he was having to fight. And the point I made to Ray was that quite often we see people who are, you've got a TEDx speech, you're a successful author, Guinness Book of Records, sounds vibrant, healthy, everything's going for you. And people go, well, it's fine for Martin. It's fine for him. Yet, what we don't understand is some of the other things that are going on in the background, like 2015, you are in Winnipeg, speaking engagement in front of you, and you're feeling a bit off. Take us to that night. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. So, um, I got to Winnipeg, but I, I had a migraine. I was feeling sick. I, I was feeling terrible. And, and the organizer, Suzanne, said, Martin, you, you, know, you look really rough. So she took me to the hospital in Winnipeg, the Grace Hospital. And they said, you know, they did a CT scan and, uh, you know, I, as a precaution. And an hour later, I'm in a hospital bed um, uh, being diagnosed with a, with a massive clot on the brain. And I was in an induced coma. And my wife, Sue, get, you know, gets a phone call, in, not from me saying I'll be home tomorrow, but from the hospital saying, get to Winnipeg now. We don't know how long he's got. And it was, it was really difficult. She came out. Um, I came out of the induced coma. I had double vision. But suddenly, from all the marathons and running, you know, I need, I need help to go the 20 feet from the hospital bed to the toilet. And, and, I mean, my world turned upside down really for the next year, year and a half. It was a totally different situation for me. Martin, tell me the conversation you had to have with yourself when you heard the news that you had that blood clot and it was going to be a long road to recovery? Because I'm curious into how do you take the dialogue or the default voices of an extreme athlete who's now facing an extreme event but of a different and more serious nature? What was that conversation you had with yourself? Do you recall that? Well, I remember, you know, I remember thinking how can I use what I've learned from the, from the extreme event to get me over this extreme event? It was kind of, it was kind of weird um, because I knew to have any chance again through this, I had to follow orders. I had to, I had to be very aware of what, what I needed to do and what the specialist told me to do. So in some ways I, I kind of took it on as a, t- as a sort of a training program kind of thing you know, the doctors told me I couldn't, uh, you know, basically walk for three months. I had to, I had to take care of myself. So, you know, I'm very good at taking orders as well. And so that's what I did. And I followed exactly in terms of medication um, and so on what the specialist told me. But I must admit, I was always pushing to say, when can I start walking again? When can I get going? And after three months, specialist said, okay, well, to be frank, then, you know, I just started walking, but I was walking sort of, you know, eight kilometers a day. Like, like it's not, I just took it on as another challenge, Gary. So I tried to, you know, be disciplined and follow what the specialist told me because I felt that's my best chance of getting through it. I know we're, I'm, I'm very conscious of time today, Martin, and 
for someone listening to this interview, nobody can out Martin Parnell, Martin Parnell. However, we can take the attributes, we can take the values or the approach of Martin and apply to our own worlds, whether we're coaching a footy team, working in a business, working in a PNC or running a small startup. If I was to say to you, what are the three words that best describe Martin? What would those three words be? So, uh... That small intermission, folks, we've just changed phones because we've been talking to Martin for so long, He, one of them has run out. So we've tried a new line, which we've got him back on. You do just love to, a chat, Gary. <laughs> just to wrap this up, Martin, if I asked Martin what three words best describe you, what three words would you use? Um, assistant would be one of them. Uh, the other I would use is... Um, Listen, and the third I would use is two words, actually. Um, have fun. Yeah, you know, well, I think, you know, I'll be honest, I think, you know, this all started, in a way, started later in my life. And so I'm 62 now, and, and I honestly believe, you know, I really, I really believe age is just a number. So I think, I think we can do more than we think we can do, number one. And so what I would say is give it a go. But when you give it a go, um, don't, you know, like, like just giving it a go, you, you can learn lots. I'm really not that, that driven for winning or whatever, but I like to try stuff and I love sharing it with people. So I think, you know, have people on the journey with you, listen to them, see if they want to be part of it, uh, but have fun as you go along because, oh man, it's such a tough go out there. There's so much going on. We're very busy. There's, you know, there's all different challenges, but be good to yourself, you know, um, Try stuff, uh, share it with others, share it with family, with friends. Um, and, yeah, just kind of enjoy life as best you can. And I know, you know, as you get older, it's not if something's going to happen to you, it's when. But uh, be open to people and be open to their ideas and, 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 as I say, try something new. Try something new. I think that's kind of cool. We've had a lovely theme which you have highlighted for us through this interview, Martin, of the great leaders, the great achievers are really being of service to others. And it's obvious that your purpose, motivation, inspiration comes from an external thing coming from others. And I'd be curious to know, and I think I'm quite taken by that that idea of running around the, the soccer field for a hundred laps and kids coming and joining you and going back to class or people meeting you on the road. But in all the time you've been doing this, what's a moment or what's something someone has said to you where you've been moved by their empathy toward you? Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's a couple of things and, uh, it really, I get a bit emotional. So two, two, two years ago, just over two years ago, I was in Afghanistan and I was running the marathon and support the girls and the women over there. And for them, it really is running for freedom and equality because they get abused, sworn at, they get rocks thrown at them for just trying to run. So there was a, a young woman, Kubra, who uh, she wanted to do the marathon, but uh, her, she, four of her friends were killed in a terrorist attack, and she, she was told she really shouldn't do the marathon. But I said, come on, Kubra, how about you and me running together? Let's see if we can beat this seven-hour cutoff when we run together. And, uh, and so, yeah, I ran with Kubra, and we, we did the nine-and-ones, just as we talked about earlier, and 
she struggled. Uh, she hadn't done the training, but we worked together. And we came in in uh, six hours and 52 minutes. And, and you know, one thing Akuba said to me afterwards is that, you know, we, you know, thank you for your help. Uh, and, uh, you know, Kuba wants to be the president of Afghanistan and she wants to invite me for a cup of tea and run 10 kilometers. And and that's worth any medal I've got in any race is where, you know, where Kuba achieved something that, that quite frankly, I don't think she, she would have achieved if we hadn't run together. And I just passed on some knowledge that allowed her to achieve her goal. And, and for me, that's becoming more and more important is to, is to hand over the baton and, and, you know, share my knowledge and let, hopefully help the younger generation maybe do some of their stuff. And I think we can all do that. That's the beauty of it. It's not, it's not leaders or presidents or whoever. We can all share our knowledge and hand it over to the next generation in many different ways, Gary. So you're an Englishman living in Canada. It sounds like a sting song. You're an Englishman in Canada. Um, <laughs> Are you, being an Englishman, are you a fan of the dart, of darts, not the dart, of darts? Are you a darts man? Oh, don't start. I love darts, Gary. Ah! I, honestly, 180, 180. I love darts. Oh, yeah. no. Come on. Yes. Oh. Nailed it. Shh. And the longer they go, I like to play like 30 games ah. in a row. The longer the better, man. Yeah. Oh, oh I love it. No. I knew that. Stuck See, in a room with two of them. I've been working the whole interview for that. That was that was the booyah moment. Thank you, Martin. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, mate. I love it. The only good it. thing about darts, Martin, is the beer that goes with it. Let's be honest. Give me a beer and a pork pie. Leave the darts out of it. I'm... Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. Martin, this has been a real pleasure. I would happily have a game of darts with you in an English pub or a Canadian hotel or an Aussie pub any day of the week. Have you ever I done think... a marathon of darts, Martin? I haven't, but you know what? I think uh, the Guinness World Record for the longest game of darts, come on, I, I'm up for it. There you go. There you go. We just set the benchmark. We'll talk to you in about six months' time, which is probably the world record, I would think. Now, I wonder, Mark, that's an interesting thing. I wonder if we went to London, how many pubs could you squeeze into 42.2 kilometres or 26 miles, do you reckon? Ooh, there's one on every corner. Jeez. There would be, uh, you're right. I, I mean, it's got to be 100 plus. Easy. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun to do the marathon of darts and actually play darts? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, That's a good idea. <laughs> look, look, I tell you what, you set it up. You set it up, Gary, up and down. Yeah, I'll, let's I'll wipe, try yeah. <laughs> let's, I'll let's it. Wipe, let's whiteboard it. <laughs> Do you reckon our sponsors will pay for that, Gary? <laughs> we might, have to under, we might, oh, need, sure. might need athletic greens or someone, something healthy to get us through that. That's gold. Well, Martin, um, this has been a real treat. I acknowledge the, the wonderful work you've done. And I think the thing that inspires me the most is you take on the things that are hard and we know that from discomfort comes growth. You, It's obvious you're being of service to others, self, selflessly approaching these events, particularly children. That That is a soft spot for us here in the Mojo Radio Show. Good on you, mate. Where where do people find out more about you, the, the things you're doing, the running, the records, the books, the whole thing? Where do we go? Yeah, well, if they go to, uh, to martinpronell.com, it's all there. They can check it all out and, uh, and, and, and have them send me a note. Yeah, just shoot me a line if, you, if they're interested, you know, if they're interested in, in doing something. I'm always up, for, you know, always up to try stuff, so uh, that'll be wonderful. <laughs> 
Well, it's been great, mate. Thank you so much for your time, Martin, and thanks to Stan Peak for putting us in touch. He's a good man, and uh, I knew we'd, we'd enjoy talking to you, Martin. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Sorry about running your phone down. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. We're fucked. I got another one. I got lots of phones, so we're good. Did you check your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. Now, before we close out the show, uh, Lola, could you play some storytime music for me, please? Just a minute. This is an email that I received during the week and I have to say best email of the year thus far. This came from Jonathan and I will read it word for word. I've been a listener, occasionally Epps missed, that's cool, we get that, Mm -hmm. for about two years and love your show. I have 10 minutes to spare and I've been wanting to write for a while. I wanted to let you know about a far-reaching effect one of your episodes has had on me. A little over a year ago, I think, you interviewed Dr. Meg Jay. Awesome show. Oh, wow. Meg was the author of a book called Supernormal. Her interview touched me so much, I ordered the book. Suffice to say, I fit one of her descriptions of the supernormal. I was listening to the audio book one day and was driving to Melbourne and found myself weeping. It just so happened that at that moment, my wife rang. I tried to sound normal, but she picked it up and asked if I was crying. I said yes and told her about the chapter and the book. Unbeknownst to me, she ordered the audiobook herself and started listening. One Saturday, I was working out in the yard and she came flying out sobbing. She wrapped her arms around me and said, I now truly got who you are and it explained a lot about me. Now, she had a life coach for many years, one Constance Arnold, based in Atlanta. Constance has her own radio show blog with hundreds of thousands of listeners in the States and around the world. I've never spoken to her, but my wife told her about the experience we'd had with Meg's book. A month or so later, I was going to Atlanta to work and caught up with Constance while I was there for a coffee. We became very good friends very quickly. And she told me that she'd arranged to interview Meg Jay on an upcoming show. It happened. Constance told Meg about us and Meg was wrapped the book was reaching people. It's a great book. They're both tremendous women. My wife is pretty cool too. And you guys started it all off. Thanks, gentlemen. Carry on. You are more awesome than you know. And through you, thousands are touched in ways you don't see. Cheers, Jonathan. How about that, mate? Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Let's call him Jono. Jono. Oh, maybe he, he might hate that. The big, let's call him the Big J. The Big J. The Jakeinator. The Jakeinator. The Jakeinator. The Jakeinator. The Jakeinator. So I, the reason I love that is because you start a little domino effect and that now those little dominoes knocked against each other and rippled in basically around the world. But through that, the work of Meg J has helped that guy see something in his own identity and has helped his wife understand that part of his identity. And then through that and his being of service to others, he gets to share the story with Constance and Constance then meets Meg and Meg gets interviewed. A hundred thousands more people in the world get to hear Meg's story about the supernaturals who are people who deal with resilience and grit, back up, deal with it. People don't think they're resilient. They don't think they're gritty, but they just deal with life and then we look at them and go, man, you're super normal. They go, no, I was just getting on with it. Yeah. So a fantastic story. And 
I said to the Janeator before we close out the little part of the show, he had the he had the privilege of playing the playout song for this segment, and this is actually one of your favourite songs. Is it really, Lola? Play in excess, never tear us apart. We could live for a thousand years, but if I hurt you, I make wine from your tears. I told you that we could fly, cause we're all. man's got taste. So to close the show out good and proper, Pop Quiz Hot Shot. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop Quiz Hot Shot. Hit me with your best shot. Middle name is Jerome, born March 27, 1963, American filmmaker, author and actor. 63. Break it <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm thinking, you can't, get, can't you hear the cogs turning? <laughs> <laughs> I can smell something burning. His films are characterised by non-linear storylines, satirical subject matter. Oh, um, Quentin Tarantino. Or Quentin, Quentin a- what's his middle name? Quentin Jerome. Jerome. <laughs> so weird. Quentin Jerome. This is a clip of Quentin Tarantino on a show called Iconoclasts and you'll find it on YouTube. It's part three, which I'll put a link to on the show notes. It's a wonderful part of the interview. But Quentin Tarantino talks about the dreams he had of what he wanted to produce on film and how others around him try to talk him out of it. Lola. I'm listening. Can you play that? I remember, like, telling... uh, um uh, some of the guys at Video Archives that I worked at, I was like, man, I, you know, I'd love to do an opening like that in a movie sometime. That would be really cool. And then somebody goes, yeah, they wouldn't let you. And my answer to this, every, and it, people have said little things like that all, all my life. And I'm like, who's they? I, there, I, there is nobody I've given them. I have, I have given nobody that kind of authority over me to say I can't do anything. I can do anything I want or I can achieve. It's up to me. I don't ask permission. I might ask forgiveness, but I don't ask permission. And um, there is no they. There is no they. And by saying that there is a they, you're creating a they. You go through all these movies. His genres break rules with everything he does, doesn't he? Oh, big time. Big time. I mean, look at Pulp Fiction. I mean, that will... People will be watching Pulp Fiction in 40 years' time going, wow, what a great movie. But do you think of Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, um, Inglorious Bastards? I mean, he doesn't... Django Unchained. Like, there's nothing... There's nothing he does that doesn't have, number one, his feel about it, his identity. And number two, I just love the idea. Think of how much stuff that you, me, all of our listeners, how much stuff that we would do, but we don't do it because we worry about 
what other people are going to think. And what's really, what sits behind this is the more you say they, the more you create a they. There is no they. There is no they. That's his words. The number one regret, according to Bronnie Ware, who wrote the top five regrets of the dying, the number one regret is I didn't live my life to my own expectations. I didn't do what I wanted to do because I tried to satisfy everybody else and I tried to satisfy the they. And if you look at Professor Charlene Nemeth with being the dissenters, Quentin Tarantino is the dissenter. He's, he's the square peg in a round hole. The nice thing about this guy is he won't listen to them. He will find a way to do what he wants to do. And consequently, when you mention Tarantino, you can go and rattle off five, five movies because they stood out for everybody else's like they're classics. That's right. And always will be. Absolutely. Yeah. Pure genius. So what, um, what play out song should we play for Tarantino? Wow. Uh, you're going to go left field here, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, I can't. L- Lola. I'm listening. Play soundtrack that goes... Hmm, just a minute. Do you know what the name of it is? Let me help you. Lola, play Dick Dale, Mizaloo. You can't be serious, is it? It is. All right, all right. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at the Mojo Radio Show.com. For more about Gary, 
See GaryBirdWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production. Check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.